You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Dr. Gary Weir, who's a chief historian for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He has responsibility for exhibits in the NGA museums and developing both the archive and a sizable artifact collection. He's also worked on histories of technological development, tradecraft innovation, scientific changes and applications, as well as IT development at NGA and across the intelligence community. Welcome, Dr. Weir. Thank you for joining us today at SpyCast. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to ask this question because there are people out there who are listening who are thinking about either a career in the IC or, in some cases, there are historians like us and they want to perhaps not go to be a professor at some university, they want to do mm -hmm. public history. So what drew you to this kind of history? We both are in the same business, but it's a very small niche group of historians that focus on intelligence history. So what made you want to do this in the first place? It had everything that I was interested in as an historian. It has science and technology, it has human relationships, uh, all the difficulties that are involved in the national challenges that we face each day. Um, it's also, I teach part-time for the University of Maryland, but it gave me an opportunity to especially in the IC and the clearances that I have, I can see the whole picture. I can see everything that happened. I can, I can look at the documents nobody else can see. But that's not just an advantage for me. What we try to do is we try to make sure, at least in the long run, that we can offer history both you know, verbally, through the museum, through the publications, that will have a sound interpretation based on everything that's available to look at in terms of sources. So that, that interpretation, whether, it's, whether it has to be altered for the general public, whether it has to be left the way it is for the professional audience, over time will still be valid because of the sound sources that we were able to use mm -hmm. going in. So you worked at NGA for, for a bit, and, but before NGA you actually were the head of the Contemporary History Branch of the U.S. Navy History and Heritage Command. And, and, and one thing I find interesting about the public histories, especially with those that are with intelligence organizations or with the military, is... The, the weight they put on history as a way to guide the future. And sometimes historians balk at this a little bit. 
Um, not not all of us. Um, That's right. I, I wonder how important, and this might be a really softball question, but we're just getting started, so we can start with some of the softballs. How important lessons learned are to these kind of organizations, whether it's the Navy or NGA? Absolutely critical, and very often the organizations, no matter what they might be, don't look to history as their lessons learned vehicle. They already have their own classic way of doing lessons learned, sometimes that are that are boiled down to an abstract expression, you know, a few hundred words at times. And both at the Navy and at NGA, what I've tried to do is to mention to these people that if you're up against some sort of conundrum, if you don't know whether you should invest money in X, whatever it might be, or whether you're wasting your people's time on something, let me do a complete workup on where you are, how you got to the point in any given endeavor that you're, that you're currently residing in. I can tell you all the good, all the, uh, the right turns, the wrong turns, the people who are involved. And then when you have that kind of context, then you make more sound decisions regarding the expenditure of, of federal dollars, the expenditure of the, of the time that you have, you know, that your staff can afford, right? And it's much more effective use of all your resources. And at NGA, increasingly, they've been asking us to do that. Over the past decade, I've been with NGA now for almost 13 years. Over the past decade, we've done seven studies of that sort. And they're done by request. We're not walking in there and banging down the door. And that's, that's helpful for us, right. and it's encouraging that they're asking for this. When I was with the Navy, a little bit less so because it was never advertised. History was never advertised to them in this way. History was always the, oh, it's great bedtime reading. We like reading about the old guys in World War II, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We encourage that completely. But on the other side, we can tell you things about where you came from that will inform your presence. Mm. Well, a ma- massive organization like the Navy and the DOD they may not have to be as efficient and as maneuverable. I mean, the Marine Corps is a great example of this, right? Everyone thinks the Marines are the never-changing, static um, armed forces branch, but they're the small, agile, always wanting to be able to be more efficient with the limited funds and resources they have. NGA within the IC has to kind of operate somewhat the same way. You don't get the money that NSA does. You don't have the personnel that CIA does. And even if you did the IC is getting dramatically less money than the DOD. You would think that lessons learned and being able to do it more efficiently and better based on history would be a priority for the intelligence community. For the intelligence community at large, I'm not quite sure I can't speak to that. For NGA, uh, using history in a lessons learned way is, is much more real than otherwise people might think. Um, it's difficult to try to make sweeping generalizations right. about the IC in its entirety. But one of the most important aspects of the program that came with me to NGA was the, the absolute determination to translate to people the idea that history is much more useful as an instrument than they might think. History can tell them where they came from and exactly what happened, what went right, what went wrong. Mm-hmm. And that places them in a situation where whatever decision they're making, whether it's operational, whether it's technical, whether it's you name it, okay, they can make it much better, much more efficiently, and with much more insight, and they can justify their actions to their superiors just that much more effectively. And so using history and the lessons learned has been a, a major component of the way I've crafted the historical program at NGA. One of, the, one of the really fun paradoxes of history like we do is the need to stay current. right? You think historians are focused on the past, but 
we need to be up on technological changes, adversarial changes, mission changes. Mm -hmm. Because like exactly what you're saying, if history is going to be a guide for the future, mm -hmm. we need to understand all of a sudden we're talking about non-state actors and how has that applied in the past. All of a sudden we're looking at technological changes and how does that make a difference. And then even mission changes, kind of the shift at 9-11 to kind of looking at, you know, your focus now is on terrorism in Afghanistan and other places versus the fold of gap across, you know, Eastern right. Europe. Um, is this something that is a constant push for you is to try to, I mean, you talk about you being cleared, a constant push to make sure you understand what is, what are the current needs of the organization to allow you to shape the history that you're providing for them? Linking that question to the one that came before it, it's a, sort of a perfect segue. Because if you're the classic historian who locks himself or herself in the archive, and look, first of all, I enjoy doing that too. I have nothing against archives. My archivist is sitting here. If I say anything, she'll hit me, okay? <laughs> so I have to make sure I say this right. But the other side of it is, when you're doing the kind of lessons learned histories that I've described to you, you do work with the people on the front line. You do work with the people in S&T who are groundbreaking. You, do, you find out what the questions they need to have answered. When I did one of my particular studies, I had the chief scientists of, of NGA come to me and say, look, you know, I can't talk about it right here, but he said, I'm being asked to invest X number of dollars, and he gave me this gargantuan number, all right, and about a third of my people to develop this new wrinkle on tradecraft. I don't even know what it is. Every time I talk to somebody, I get a different story. And you did something for ODNI that we found profitable here. Can you do that for this? And we did. So 27 oral histories later, and about a half a year later, we produced a study that's been used across the IC mm -hmm. to instruct people on this particular tradecraft. But the bottom line for me is that this guy came to us, one of our seniors, our senior scientists, and we were able to place him in a picture where he could make informed, intelligent decisions regarding how to use national assets and to serve the agency's mission. And that, to me, was a win-win. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. That's right. exactly what I wanted to do with the history. So you know, when people ask me, well, why do you have an archive to do that? Why do you do oral histories to accomplish that? Why do you have uh, you know, curatorial objects in your, uh, in your collection to demonstrate how this is done? We've acquired two brand new, rather sophisticated sensors that we're going to make. It, we're going to build a, uh, a, uh, a museum exhibit around them, and the purpose there is not to put a couple of hunks of junk in the floor on the floor in the museum. It's what are these things? Where do they come from? What questions did they answer? And how did NGA research produce this, these things, and why? Well, a lot of the and now we know that now we know the people who asked for this, all right, and what they needed to do. And the, the lessons learned histories brought us to that level, brought us to that front line, and allowed us to be informed. One, a lot of the wonderful things about intelligence artifacts is that intelligence agencies and people who build these things are being asked to solve almost unsolvable problems. Right? If they were easy, somebody else would have done them. By the time they get to CIA or NGA, it means they're incredibly difficult. And what's wonderful about some of these innovations is that they're, to use the cliche, they're very outside of the box thinking, right? They're yes. focused on things. And you go, how did they think of that? And that's one of the wonderful things about some of this technology because it is so far afield of what you would think an engineer would be thinking about. It's not, I have a problem, let me solve it with step A. This is like step Q or step omega because they've gone through right. so many processes up to that point. And what's great about, it's not just a hunk of junk, that what you're seeing as a final product was not only innovated in such a very unique way, but that's at the end of a long line of screw-ups and mistakes and mm -hmm. just idiocy along the way. Yeah. 
And I think that's what kind of brings history alive with these objects. Oh, sure. But also, as an historian, you, you interact with these people, and you get to learn how they think. What brings them to that kind of innovation? What kind of intuition do they bring to the equation? How often do they say, I just don't know how to handle this. I need to collaborate with somebody else. And collaboration is so terribly important. And then you see the synergy develop that allows them to do something that many of them thought was impossible, and they've actually achieved it. The NGA and geospatial intelligence might be one of the least well-understood fields of intelligence. And that's even within the IC. I mean, we're talking about the general public as well. One thing I find really interesting about geospatial intelligence versus some of the other agencies that make up the IC is the consumer of intelligence is not necessarily always a top-level policymaker. But there's a lot of pushing down information to the warfighter on the ground, the mm -hmm. brigade commander, the butterbar platoon commander, even me, I mean, I, I, you know, when I was in the Balkans in the 1990s, we, we, de we depended on knowledge of terrain and topography to make sure we didn't blow ourselves up on a minefield or someone else right, like that. Right. How does that dynamic shape what you do as a historian? Because it, it is the kind of this multi-directionality thing where it's not just a lot of the CIA historians and they're wonderful people. They're really focusing on what we told the president during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. That's easy to do and maybe easier to do than to say, okay, how did NGA help this platoon leader in Fallujah do their jobs? We recently finished a single-volume history of the agency, which required us to go back and take a look at the seminal documentation that gave us, gave us life. And one of the most important things that I took away from that was that we were designed to be different. We already had an NSA. We already had a DIA. We didn't need another one. Right, and our founders deliberately brought together imagery analysis, mm -hmm. a wide variety of phenomenologies, and perhaps the most important, a cartographic geodetic agency in the world, defense mapping. And they knew putting all these various tradecrafts and approaches under the same roof, so to speak, wasn't going to succeed straight away. Because people were going to say, why do I have to sit in here with this cartographer? But then again, people started saying, well, maybe if we start talking to one another rather than at or around one another, we may be able to improve what we do by an order of magnitude. And we had a lot of people, thank God, who did just that. And that was the intention of the founders, that a new dynamic, a new approach to intelligence would begin with NGA. And a, more, a broader scope as well. Uh, from my point of view, and this is Gary Weir talking, this is just me editorializing, there can be no national decision. There can be no a wise national decision. There can be no real understanding of intelligence without the context that geospatial intelligence provides. Because we know the Earth, and we try to show the way in the model that we use. But the point is, we know the entire environment that you're looking at. Now, for example, uh, years ago, one of the first projects we were involved in was a pilot project examining human, human geography. Because Admiral Moreto, director at the time, wanted to know whether all of his people should be trained in this. And basically, human geography is a combination of anthropology and history mm -hmm. when you come right down to it. You know, and we're talking about knowing the area culturally. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, as General Petraeus said years ago, if you know, I'm paraphrasing, of course, if you know the terrain, the area of the world that you're involved with in militarily or in intelligence as well or close nearly as well as the people who live on it all the time, you have a strategic advantage. That's what NGA is about. Knowing the earth, knowing the area immediately above the earth, being able to know what's right, what's wrong, what fits, what doesn't fit. Also, the movement of the people on the earth. Right? This is a different take. The others don't do this. Right. 
You know, we're not a, a, a imagery analysis factory for the IC writ large. We're a geospatial intelligence factory for the IC writ large. Different, different animal entirely. Much more penetrating, much more all-inclusive, much more comprehensive. And I think that's one of the most misunderstood things about geospatial intelligence is it's just a fancy way of saying imminent. And that, right. that, that, that to me is kind of like one of the most misunderstood things about GEOINT is that, oh, well, it just wanted to make Emmett sound fancier by making it longer. But like you mentioned, like you just kind of explained several different iterations of the fact that why it's different. But for those that are still going, okay, it's just kind of, it's Emmett. What, what are the, some of the fundamental things that GEOINT involves that makes it much more than just imagery intelligence? All right, if you pick a target, uh, if you look, let's, let's look at uh, Abbottabad where they found bin Laden, all right, without, and just looking at the, at, the, at the surface of the earth at that point in time and that area, all right? If, if we're just looking at this region and we're examining places that where he might be, all right, what can we bring to the equation? Okay, well, how, can we, how can we set the stage for further discovery? Well, we can take a look at almost every structure in the area. Is this typical or atypical? Right? We can look at approaches, physical approaches, getting to it, moving away from it. We can take a look at how the structure is actually built. Right? Does that tell you something about who might be in it? Right? These are things that the other intelligence agencies really aren't going to look at, but we are. Right? Also, can we do this we can, because of our imagery analysis component and because we have access to the fine satellites that NRO and the commercial sector put in the, spa put in the space for us? Right, we have all the imagery that we need to look right down into the weeds. All right? So also culturally, how are the people behaving in the region? Right? Their, their, their responses to one another, all right? the, the obligations they have from day to day, which may be constructed in part by religion. Okay? This is the kind of thing that we can bring to that equation, combination of human geography, phenomenology, uh, topographic um, surveying. Okay, all these things you know, we can bring. We can bring it together, and we can bring a geospatial analysis from it to the decision makers. Well, what's interesting? I mean, GeoInt, like all the other ints, does not usually work in a vacuum. There has to be kind of multi-int products, and you know, like talking about Bin Laden, which we'll talk about yeah. a little bit more. So, as a historian, how much do you need to keep up with it, what the other agencies are doing? How much do you, when you do a history of NGA, do you do a history of NGA in a vacuum? Or do you do it as part of a broader look at interactions with other agencies? Well, it depends on the audience you have if you're writing a history, right? The single-volume history that we did for the agency is basically f for our agency and for other people in the IC who want to learn more about us. So the, the audience the, was a bit, a bit more restricted. But working with the other agencies, collaboration with the other agencies, I think the 9-11 Commission pointed out that we were lacking in that just a bit some years ago the idea of collaborating, getting along, and, sh and sharing, all right? And uh, some of the consequences of the lack of collaboration were quite devastating at some times, at some, at some points. So collaborating more is important. Now, for example, just looking at it from the historical point of view, right, in recent years, the Senior Historians Panel, the IC, has been created. And we're about to have a, one of our quarterly meetings. So the point is we keep track of what one another might be doing. We can, we're also, there, we're constantly seeking common projects that we might engage in which is one of, the, one of the things I'd like to speak to you about in the future when we're mm -hmm. done here. But the point is there is a commonality there. There is an awareness of what everybody does. And 
sometimes people say, well, they don't really still collaborate, do they? I mean, they're still going through this. In very, very particular situations, that may still be true. However, give an example. When I did the first chapter of our history, I needed to find out all the data I possibly could about the stand-up of our agency and why we were, we were created. And one of the retired directors of the Defense Mapping Agency, General Rosenberg, gave me the name of a couple of documents. He said, Gary, you've got to see these documents. They're, they're, they're seminal. So we didn't have them in our collection. So I emailed my counterpart over at CIA, do you guys have these? And the point I'm trying to make here is that they not only found those, but the archivist over there at the historian's instruction, and I'm sure he did it on his own as well, they dug out, as they looked, they pulled out every single document about what was then NEMA, National Imagery Mapping Agency, our first name, pulled out everything about the stand-up of NEMA that they could find along the way. So I had an unbelievably complete story in that first chapter about where we came from, why, why we looked the way, why we constructed the way we are, what our main basic mission and purpose is. And a large part of that came from collaboration that I didn't even ask for initially. Right. So it's there, and it's rich, right? And sometimes you have to shake people a little bit and remind them that they're not living in their own little cubbyhole someplace. But it's there, and the possibilities are endless, as long as we push, it, push gently but firmly to go in that direction. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. This is a really good segue to kind of talk about you already mentioned the NRO and NGA and NRO work very closely together because of the you know the satellites and the imagery from from space and other places. NGA's purpose is kind of build the quote map of the world to kind of understand things in the best way. How has the IC helped you build that other than NRO? Like how are the other how the collaboration between NGA and CIA and DIA and, and NSA? How does this come together to help you do your jobs? I understand, and I think the public understands how NGA helps others. How does it come back the other direction? Well, we actively hold um, events at the NGA which will bring other people from the other agencies and the armed forces to us to collaborate in general and to discuss in general what the needs are. For example, right now at NGA, we're holding Russia Days. It's going on right now as we speak. All right? That's just not for NGA people. CIA comes, DIA comes, NSA comes, the military comes, large contingent of military, and also some of our cleared uh, commercial supporters. What do we have? What do we need? What systems do we need in the future? To what extent are the systems providing us with the kind of intelligence, the kind of raw data that we need? How do we better scrub that data so the, so the analysts can use it and gain access to it right away? So right now as we speak, one of those events is going on over there that allows people to cross those boundaries. Mm-hmm to create a dynamic that will, that will remind them that they have other people across the river, across the country, helping them out. One of the classic examples of that was years ago, uh, I, I interviewed one of, our, one of our premier analysts who's still with us, and he talked about uh, Darfur, 
when they first discovered years ago that there was genocide going on there. And I said, how did you go about it? He said, he said it was classic collaboration. He said, one of the things that is one of his habits, personal habits, I imagine other people do this too. When I'm assigned a new, uh, a new uh, not target deck, but a new uh, portfolio. So what I'll do is I'll cold call my, my opposite numbers in the other agencies. And I'll say, I don't want anything from you. It's okay. I'm so-and-so. I've just been assigned to this. If you need any help, give me a yell. And may I call you if I have some problems? Mm-hmm. And he says, you always get a good response. He says, but sometimes, you know, maybe in the future, maybe, maybe not. Well, shortly thereafter, he got a call from his counterpart at CIA saying, We're have, we have humans coming in telling us that a great many people are dying in southern Sudan. We've got people who are, who are telling us that villages are being burned down. In other words, there's a cleansing process going on here that's absolutely reprehensible, but we want to know whether what we're hearing is accurate. Can you help? And he put in a request to have some satellite time devoted to it. And what resulted from that was a series of cartographic products that we, that we produced, as well as analysis to back them up, showing what was happening, where it was happening, how it was happening. And then we produced briefing boards in the old days before you, you know, it wasn't all that long ago actually, but the briefing boards were going to be used on the floor of the Senate by the late Senator John McCain to announce to the world that there was, there was something nasty going on in Darfur that need, needed to be shown under the light of day. And we still have those briefing boards in the collection. Hmm. So in a way, I've discovered, talking to people over time, that it's not only institutional collaboration, but the collaboration has to come from the individual, from many individuals saying, look, I've got a colleague up at NSA who does this stuff all the time. Give him a call. Give her a call. Say, look, I don't want to bother you about this, but this is the kind of thing I'm doing. You know, give me a yell if you need help, and may I call you if I need some assistance? And there's a lot of that going on, and it works remarkably well. Well, NGA is one of the, the youngest, I mean, as a institution with that name. I know yes. that there's a lot of, right. you know, different alphabet soup going back quite some time throughout history. Um, but let me ask you a question about the, the question you rarely ask a historian. But I'm going to ask you about the future. Um, is there anything from the last 10 years of NGA that might point to as a, a redefining the mission going into the future within the next 20, 20 years? New threats. We talked about asymmetrical threats. We talked about, I think, things like migration, which is exactly something that NGA would be focused on. Climate which is another thing that NGA might be very heavily focused on, right? You guys are uniquely in a position to look at the Sahara Desert. Is it getting bigger? Is there climate changes taking place? Other resources, rogue states? Is this something that is going to be a key, regardless of, of what political system is going on or anything else? Uh, you, under the DOD, the DOD is really focused on this idea of the fact that Norfolk Naval Base may not exist in 20 years, right? right? Yeah. So uh, NGA is uniquely suited, I would think, not just climate change, but also look at migration and yeah. resource allocation, stuff like that. Well, no doubt the way you've described this, the way you've posed your question, demonstrates the increasing scope of NGA's mandate, whether we like it or not, because we are who we are. So the most important thing for us is to be able to cope with that. Now, there's a technical coping and there's a human coping. The human coping side means you have to make sure that all the data you're collecting, which is almost overwhelming at times, given the scope of the mission, given the various tasks, and given the collection systems that we have, to make sure the data is, is, is conditioned such that our analysts can use it properly and draw the proper conclusions from what they're saying and that they can get to it very, very quickly. Right? That is an ongoing, difficult problem that's constantly wrestled with. I think we're doing rather well with it. 
based on a study that I did on the evolution of the, uh, of the IT uh, enterprise at NGA. But it's, it's, it's going to keep getting worse, not worse because it's necessarily ugly, but worse because of the increasing scope of the mission, the physical scope of the mission. Now, on the other side, in terms of actually collecting the data, I think our recently retired director, Mr. Cardillo, uh, managed to demonstrate quite clearly that we're not going to do this just solo. We need partners. So we're not only partners within the IC, so for example, the, the IC uh, movement into the, into the cloud, which is funded and, and, uh, and energized by multiple agencies, not just one, to be able to hold the data, to be able to condition it properly, make it available through the various tools to the analysts, but also working with the commercial sector. Right? Can we always put national technical means up there to do everything we want? Yes and no. And that's got to be the answer. There's no choice there. Right. You know, so it's just like you know, when, I, when I give a museum tour at, at, at NGA, we have something out on our floor called the IDEX2, which is the second generation of our first attempt to exploit imagery data digitally. All right? And I mentioned this is in the mid-1980s. Said, oh yeah, okay, okay, and this is all proprietary. Oh, you guys did this all? Yeah, we, we generated this by ourselves. I said, oh, and oh, by the way, of course, our predecessor agency actually generated it. And by the way, about the time when this seemingly clunky device was created, Steve Jobs had the Mac introduce itself mm-hmm. from a stage out in California in 1984. So I say it was. It became quickly obvious that the commercial sector, in many ways, not all, but in many ways, was moving faster than we were. So the kind of partnerships that Mr. Cardello aggressively pursued has to be part of coping with the broader mission, all right, enabling the analysts, conditioning the data, and coming to terms with a, an increasingly sizable mission. And all right, I, I understand that I'm an NGA person. But I think NGA is going to become increasingly important over time because of the scope of the threats, both natural and man-made. Well, I mean, especially if you're, if you're looking ahead, again, I'm not, going to, I'm not being a dead horse in this case, is that I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, whether you're look at the left side talking about climate change or the right side talking about migration. And, you know, the movement is having people to understand geography, having people to yes. understand climate having people to understand the way the world is changing right Mm -hmm. because that's kind of a fundamental mission of nga is understanding change over time right because you're the only agency that's looking at that that to me seems paramount regardless of political persuasion in the next 15 20 30 years and the kind of thing that we can provide for example as the arctic begins to become more navigable right who owns what right is it the russians is it the canadians is it us is it greenland is it iceland Right, and how to be able so there's not only a, a military and intelligence aspect to what we do, but the context that we can provide has to has to be made available to people who make diplomatic and political decisions as well. Because in that context is where they need to live. They really have no choice. So we are looking at the future, we have no choice to, but to look at the future. Because the next thing that comes down the pike, we can't be waiting for another Pearl Harbor. Right. Right, we've got to be one step ahead of the curve if we can manage it. That's expensive. It's difficult. It's people-intensive. But the curious part about it is that I've discovered, once again, through the lessons learned histories that have brought me right to the edge of where some of these people are working. You know, when you're sitting over at Langley talking to an NGA analyst, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning, but that's the only time, she, the only time she's had to break away from her, from her job. 
and you realize she's been over to Afghanistan five times, all right, and she's trying to keep us ahead of the curve, then you realize what the problem really looks like, and you come away with remarkable admiration for people who are a third of my age doing this. About a couple months ago, I talked to uh, the DIA, your, basically your counterpart at DIA, uh, talking about their role in the, the raid to get Osama bin Laden. And most people didn't know about it, right? Most people thought from the movies and from pop culture, everything else, it was a CIA operation. Even less people probably know about NGA's role in the hunting and killing of Osama bin Laden. And, and so I want to ask you about that because I think that's kind of fundamental. Um, this was a CIA operation for quite some time, right? To try to find bin Laden. I can ask a question. I think it's not the right question, but I'm going to ask it. You can correct me. I'm going to ask, when was NGA brought in? Maybe they were never not brought in. Maybe they were there since the very beginning of the hunt for bin Laden and the invasion of Afghanistan. Well, there are details we can't talk about here. Right. Because I'll go back and you'll have to visit me in Leavenworth yes. thereafter. So we won't go there. But uh, a number of our analysts sat down a few years ago, a very few years ago, and did what they called, wrote up what they called the, the GOINT hunt for bin Laden which goes all the way back to even before 9-11, all right, when he became a, a person of interest because of his political attitudes, because of his wealth, right, and because of his following. They began tracking him a long time ago, uh, trying to demonstrate to others that perhaps we've got, a, we've got a loose cannon here, somebody who can turn into something really ugly if we're not careful. And so, for example, uh, a recently declassified model that we're going to share with the 9-11 Museum of Tarnak Farms a location that started out as an agricultural community but morphed into a tr terrorist training base. Uh, NGA had visited that possibility years ago when they were tracking him, knew that he resided there every once in a while, which was why Tarnak Farms was hit very, very hard almost immediately after 9-11. Right, so we were deeply involved in that. Also, the various signatures, which we can't talk about in, in any great detail, the various signatures that we used to track him over time came from our imagery analysts. So there's a lot of geospatial going on here. Right, because somebody, every day of every year, every minute of those days, somebody's got to be someplace. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a ridiculously simple statement, but hold that in your mind for a second. Imagine somebody at a, at a location. What does the geospatial analyst or the imagery analyst from NGA want to know? All right, where is that location? What's it like? What's the terrain like? Elevation, depression, access, uh, climate, cultural constructs, Everything we need to know to be able to work in that location belongs to NGA. Well, you, you, you kind of laid out exactly what a, let's say, hypothetically, a team of special operators like the SEALs would need to know in order to go into, mm -hmm. hypothetically, a place like Abbottabad, Pakistan, to actually carry out this mission. <coughs> um, people may not know. I think a lot do, but let's say half probably know that there was a model built yes. of the Abbottabad complex, right. and that was had a lot to do with what NGA had come up with when it came to what that, that area looked like. Right. When I talked to the people over at the model shop, they just simply said, we didn't know why we were building it. Yeah. We were just giving imagery, given imagery, we were given data, and we were told there was short fuse. So they began putting it together. Initially, there was only one model made. Right After the fact, after the Bin Laden takedown, two others were made. One was given to SEAL Team 6 for the obvious reason, and one was given to CIA by Director Long as a gift. We've made another one since that will take place of the original model 
in our director's gallery when the original model goes to the 9-11 Museum in New York for two years for their Bin Laden, Hunt for Bin Laden exhibit. But when the guys actually made the, the initial model, they didn't know why they were doing it. Mm -hmm. But they were giving you know, very, very detailed imagery. It had to be exactly the way it was looking. So what's a model? Why, why did they bother with the model to begin with? Right. They've got imagery, so what's the big deal here? Model brings it alive a little bit more for people who are making critical decisions, who are walking on thin ice making those decisions at times, and who want a little bit more sensory assurance that what they're doing is right. So one of the guys who talked to me said, you know, it wasn't until he actually went down and they showed a picture of the location, oh, that's why we were making that model. <laughs> he didn't know. <laughs> but the model that they made went to the White House and President Obama used it. The model they made went down to SEAL Team 6. The model they made went with SEAL Team 6 into the field. And it came back, and CIA wanted it desperately, and we said, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it came back to us. And one of the reasons, it's not just petty. If you come to NGA, for example, during family day, and we close off a lot of the areas, but the staff can bring in their families and such. If they look at nothing else in the place that's historical, and I've watched this happen, Parents will bring the kids up to the director's gallery on the sixth floor and show them that model mm -hmm. and said, we took care of that fellow. There's a sense of pride there, which is why I said, you know, it goes for two years and it comes back. Right. Because our people need to see this. I mean, I can think as an operator, there'd be nothing better. Forget, I've looked at imagery, even really, really recent imagery, um, but it's two-dimensional, right? Even good imagery is right. two-dimensional. Right. And it's great to, you can kind of, in your mind's eye, create a three-dimensional image and kind of figure out what's behind that door and what. But it's, and if you have the real thing in front of you, instead of trying to explain to somebody all the photogrammet photogrammetric observations that yeah. can tell someone what the what the image on the on the on the on the photograph is saying, if they've got a three-dimensional in front of them, you don't have to bother with that. It's all here. He was walking here. That's why the top of the that's why the top of the uh, the what do you have, the arbor, I guess they call it, was covered, okay? We've seen people walking in there, and there are other aspects to it. And also the model was sanitized a little bit when we put it out because Director Long wanted our people to see it mm -hmm. and wanted the public to see it. It's not sanitized dramatically. Right. Just a little bit. And models can be scaled up for practice operations, yes. perhaps. Yes, yes. I don't know how much or how little you can say about that, but... I'm not going to go there. Yeah, I can, but yes, <laughs> and you can just nod along, but yes, it's very easy to scale up a model for a rehearsal uh, if you want to actually do it beforehand. Um, what, I mean, Bin Laden Raid is, again, one of the most famous, certainly for those who are alive today. Um, this is where I'm kind of torn between what I know you can't talk about and what I want you to talk about, which is always wonderful, <laughs> uh, as the you know the the, the independent non governmental uh, historian, I want to like everything. But you, I don't want to put you on the spot here. Um, models, the model shop, I want to talk a little bit about because people again might think that's kind of a very old fashioned way of doing things. Let me ask you this question, and I think you can maybe answer it. Other than kind of clay and and plastic models. NGA has been developing technologies to allow for more three-dimensional digital modeling and other yeah. things like that, too. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution and next step in model making? I'm not a modeling expert. Uh, most, of my, most of my work has kept me in the physical modeling area, working with people there. Uh, 
So I know a little bit about that, but not much mm -hmm. at all. Uh, to me, though, it's a logical next step, right? Because to be able to visualize something, you know, digitally, can be every bit as effective, perhaps, as a physical plastic model. You know, I told the guys over the model shop in the Langley, which belongs to us. You know, I've done some uh, model railroading and stuff like that, and they all they all thought I was one of the one, one of the guys. They said, No, 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 no. Yeah. What you do is an order of magnitude above what I could right. possibly do. But a lot of the materials that they use, getting back to your question, are the materials that I use with my mm -hmm. model railroading layout. It was all very familiar to me. You know, polystyrene plastic, you know, the, the lichen that you would use for, for, for plants and trees and stuff of this one, and how you would use it and place it and place put it in place so it looks realistic. We can do that. Um, well, let me back up and give you another example that perhaps I, I can talk about. Um, I believe now over at the new reception center at George Washington's home in Mount Vernon, right, they're using virtual reality mm -hmm. to be able to project people back into another time. Right. Right. When you take a look at that, focusing on the 18th century, and perhaps even before, I've only been there once, it's highly unlikely that any intelligence agency would avoid using the same technology to try to explain to people who need those explanations why they're suggesting a course of action or why they feel that something, they found something that's significant. You know, the same thing, for example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, one of the books I've read many times, uh, reflecting on Bobby Kennedy's uh, role in, the, uh, in advising his brother during that period of time, Orlando uh, was taken aside by Bobby Kennedy once, and Kennedy said, you know, how do you know that all the things you're telling us are present in this image? And Lundahl started explaining it to him. And then he said, basically, Mr. Kennedy, we've been at this for 20, 30, 40 years. Right. We know exactly what we're looking at. Back in 2012, for example, we had a, you could call it a celebration, I guess, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, because when you avoid nuclear war, you mm -hmm. tend to celebrate. Right. And uh, when uh, one of the original four analysts from NPIC, of course, NPIC is part of our heritage. We absorbed NPIC in 96. National Photo Interpretation Center, for people who don't, aren't aware of that. Vince Dorenzo came down from Pennsylvania, one of the original four people who cracked the Cuban Missile Crisis imagery. And he sat and, on, you know, at, on, the, uh, on the dais there, and I said, how did you know what they were up to? And he said, I knew what they were, the, 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 the phrase he used about them was a bit salty. He said, I knew what they were up to before the crates came off the ships. He said, because I've been looking at those medium-range ballistic missiles for so long, they pack them the same way, the crates look the same way, they handle them the same way, they bring them off the ships the same way. They're medium-range ballistic missiles. I didn't need them to open the box. Right. You know, so for, for that kind of experience, you know, Kennedy relied on that. We still rely on that. Now it can be expressed virtually, no doubt about it. But it's the experience that illuminates the technology. Well, it was a master class about talking about virtual reality and saying things and not saying things at the same time because of <laughs> classification issues. So I appreciate that. I learned from that very well. Um, let me for for those out there that want to know more about NGA from NGA. What I know, obviously, there's an NGA website. But as far as the history that you guys have put out that's declassified, is there a way to get to it? They're renovating our website now, our public website now. And we're trying to make as much of the unclassified stuff available on the website. You know, one of the, one of the ideal websites, the one that I use a lot that I really enjoy is NSAs. Mm -hmm. The Center for Cryptologic History has an excellent historical component to their, to their website. And we're trying to emulate that. Most of what we've done, since we're a very, very small group and not a very large one, uh, most of the stuff that we turn out is classified. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's on demand 
or there's a particular need for it, all right? But we have things, for example, things related to our museum, the brochures that we put out, the, um, the, especially the, the, the exhibit guides that, uh, that my, uh, my, my curator, Alison Russell, has been working on that for quite a while. You know, these things can be put out and used, you know, as sources. And uh, what it does basically for us is it reminds people how deep we are, technically, in terms of expertise, in terms of history. We go back a long way, especially if you look at cartography. You know, when's the first map? Probably some guy knelt down on a piece of dirt and picked up a, 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 a branch and drew a map of somebody to find their way back to the tribe. Mm. Welcome to cartography. Right. Primitive, yes, but cartography nonetheless. You know, and that's who we are in large part. Well, I know NGA's history traces like the American part of it back to like Lewis and Clark and kind of looking yeah. at some of these things that people wouldn't necessarily associate with geospatial intelligence, but it was. I mean, it's the curious part about it, you can go online right now and find the directions, the detailed directions that Thomas Jefferson gave to Lewis and Clark before they embarked from St. Louis. And you read the whole thing, you're seeing cartography, you're seeing surveying, you're seeing, you know, the straight mapping, but also human geography. Who's living out there? Mm -hmm. Who are they? How are they working on that land? What do they speak if you can find out? What's the, what's the, what's the culture like? We're doing the exact same thing all around the world. Well, Dr. Gary Weir is the Chief Historian at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Dr. Weir, thank you so much for joining us on SpyCast. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.